The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So before I begin the talk tonight, I thought uh, we just could take some time in case anybody has any questions about practice. So uh, every month or two, just an opportunity to clarify the instructions if you're not clear about what you're noticing, how you're working with what you're noticing, challenges that might come up. Does anybody have any questions? Sashana. So she's asking about patterns of emotions arising in sitting practice in a regular way and not being able to attribute the emotion to anything in particular. Well, that sounds, it sounds common. Like uh, we have a lot of emotions that have been set in motion for all kinds of reasons in the past. And then those emotions don't, emotions don't necessarily go away. I mean, they do go, they do come and go, but a little bit what I'm going to talk about later tonight, there's a, a dance and um, between the physical experience of emotion and the thoughts and images associated with that emotion. And when we have a thought, like a memory that's charged, then that memory or that thought about that memory that evokes a physical experience that sort of parallels that thought, that emotion or that memory. And then the physical experience is the cause for more thought. And thought is, more ca is a cause for more sensation. And this is what gives emotion lives, uh, emotions life is this dance between the physical part and the mental part. They both are triggers for each other. And so they can, um, an emotion like resentment or loneliness or all kinds, they can go on for years or a whole life even. I mean, it's not continuous. It's just a birth, a death, a birth, a death, a birth, a death. But even though it ends, the causes, it, causes for it to arise again haven't been extinguished <clears throat> so the emotion will keep arising so when we sit and there are regular visitors regular emotions that keep coming back to us whatever it might be like even doubt something as simple as doubt or um, judging you know you just find your mind dwelling indulging and judging over and over again then there are a couple different ways to work with it but the basic way is to open to it but you know, that's not, we don't even know what that means. The key here is to understand that the thoughts associated with the emotion, the images associated with the emotion, that's the most superficial part of what's going on. And that's usually what we give all our attention to. 
And then inevitably, if we think about the thoughts, you know, which is not really any different than indulging in them, getting identified with them, then it's just triggering the whole pattern. So, of course, we are going to be aware of the thoughts and images associated with this emotion, but we want to very quickly go to something not on the surface. So what we normally do is just start to feel the particular characteristics of that emotion. Is it heavy? Is it hot? Is it held? Is it expansive? You know, just the different visceral aspects. So that what is alive in the body, basically, associated with these thoughts, this emotion? What's alive in the body? And then even more subtle than that, I mean, it doesn't sound subtle, but it actually is, because the particular texture of the emotion is also a little bit diluting, but it's better than being in the, on the level of content. So we go to the visceral experience of the emotion, and then in a more refined way, we look right at the unpleasantness of it, assuming it's an unpleasant emotion. If it's a pleasant emotion, then we look at the pleasantness of it. Because pleasantness and unpleasantness is something that's happening in the present moment. The mind is interpreting, because of the way it's been conditioned, this experience as either being pleasant or unpleasant, this experience of an emotion as being pleasant or unpleasant. So we want to see the unpleasantness of it, because that's the real trigger, if it's an afflictive or an unpleasant emotion. Can we place the attention, or can we open the heart to the unpleasantness of this present moment emotion? Can we let it be unpleasant as it actually is? So we go from the content to the visceral experience of the emotion to the unpleasantness, if it's unpleasant, of that visceral experience. And that's, we try to peacefully coexist with the unpleasantness of it, like be undefended, allow it to be. Now, one, so that's the basic way to do it. We're going from the, the gross to the subtle, from the superficial to where the trigger, where the trigger that triggers reactivity, where is that trigger? Well, it's usually the unpleasantness. We're also triggered by the pleasantness of experience, too. If we're not fully present, intimate with pleasantness, we will, we will automatically, habitually react with attachment. That's what we do when we're, we're in the midst of something pleasant. Just like if it's an unpleasant emotion, we react with aversion, reactivity, the aversive reactivity. And to help that process along, there are a few, I guess you, you could almost say, tricks. Like when we realize we're lost, like we keep getting swept away by an emotion, and we come back, we know there's this emotion, but we can't seem to get any footing, like where we're actually... Mindfulness is seeing something. The mind that knows, the heart that can know or open to something, doesn't know what to open to. And so you can ask yourself a question. So you're there sitting, and you can just ask the question without expecting any answer. You know, what else can be known in this moment? Or what isn't being seen? What's happening but not being seen in this moment? What else is happening here? So we're inviting uh, a, a sort of a greater degree of sensitivity. And especially we're inviting the, uh, 
capacity to go beyond what is already known. Because sometimes we think we know what's going on, and that thinking that we know what's going on prevents seeing something else that's going on. Like we might think it's about anger, but actually there may be some profound fear that we're not seeing. But the anger is like protecting us from feeling afraid. So we have to some, sometimes that the mind defends the, the, the sense of self, that part of the mind that constructs, constructs and maintains a sense of self, this idea that we're apart from the world. It's very well defended. And it uses emotions to defend it. We use emotions to defend the sense of self. Because reacting to emotion makes us feel very much alive as a self. Right? I mean, this is why we indulge in so many afflictive emotions. Why else would we do that? Because they're so painful. You know, it's so painful to hold resentment for years and years or to crave something for years and years. So why do we do it? Like, this is interesting. Like, uh, this is one of those places where it's good to reflect on science. You know, science has this theory of evolution and how things evolve because they're more efficient, basically. So then we look at our mental emotional patterns and we go, this doesn't seem efficient. <laughs> Why would we develop this? Well, what's happened for human beings with language is the survival has, it's still worth sort of trying to physically survive, but then now that whole system has sort of morphed into psychological survival. So we have a sense of self, and that sense of self basically is driven by this process of continuing that the physical system is. And so we have all kinds of efficient ways to maintain a sense of self, very well defended. And it all often revolves around emotional drama and then getting identified with the emotional drama. And so we've developed ways of stimulating emotional drama and then reacting to it with identification and stimulating and reacting. And we feel very much that sense of self is very much alive and surviving. Even at the time of death, it's very much alive. You know, oh, poor me, or I don't want to die, or boy, am I ready to die. That there's, there are all different forms of self-centered thinking. So even though in a, in a seems like in a, in a physiological or biological sense, we're trapped by the survival instinct. Psychologically, we don't need to be trapped. We just need to see it and see that it's not helping. This, this fear of not having a sense of self isn't helping. It's basically keeping us from a more direct and what people normally call a myst mystical or uh, free way of being, free way of understanding our predicament as a human being. Because we've just gotten caught in this sort of psychological trap that is simply uh, arisen out of our biological conditioning. And uh, it doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, this is what saints, they generally talk the difference between a worldly person. A worldly person is, a, is really an animal, except that They've, you know, a human has a more highly evolved psychological system, but they're both in sync with each other, the physical system and the psychological system. They're just operating as an animal. And a spiritual being is 
someone that has been able to lay down or abandon or extinguish the psychological, uh, the psyche, the psyche driven by kind of the survival, the self-centered survival. And then we get what we call a saint, somebody who isn't on one level or another obsessed about psychological survival. And so then they can be loving and generous and patient and forgiving and wise because their minds aren't distorted by all that self-centered stuff. And so they're just more clear. So they respond more clearly, responsively to things. And this is what we aspire to. I mean, this is what I aspire to. Any other questions about practice? So I'll continue. I've, I've been talking, uh, starting last week, about a more direct way to practice in daily life. So this whole first half of the year, at least, 2008, I've been talking about more about how to practice in daily life than the formal sitting practice. Like, what does mindfulness, what does awareness practice look like as we go about the day? And last week, I, I just suggested that we can use the Eightfold Path as a way of practicing in daily life, the three parts of the Eightfold Path. So there's the direct way, the most direct way of practicing freedom, which is to practice being free directly. And in this direct way, this is sort of the wisdom practice. The direct way is, well, if we're free, then our bodies should be relaxed. So you, we can just practice relaxing our body. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be free, but it, as a practice, it can be a really important learning way of learning. Just to bring softness and maybe slowing down a little bit into different places in our lives and to notice we're a different human being when the body's undefended, not defended with tension, but soft. We're a different human being. We relate differently. And then the other aspect of that direct path, the wisdom path, of course, is do the same thing with the mind. So instead of relaxing the body, more important, even more important, but much more difficult, is to in any moment just relax the mind, soften the mind slow down the mind. And so I, this is what I started talking about last week. I'm going to keep talking about this for a few more weeks. This is the direct approach. Now, I'm just going to mention the two other ways. So uh, for a couple months, I was talking about sila, the second way. This is a more gradual path where we're creatively using restraint in our daily life in order to illuminate our conditioning. Like We need to see things in order to change. We can't change our lives, we can't change our habit energy if we don't see it. So we use creative restraint. So this is the area of ethical conduct. In Buddhism it's called sila. Sometimes it's translated as ethical conduct or morality or living in harmony. And it all generally revolves around non-harming. You know, so other things like not taking things that aren't given, giving, that aren't given to us rather, that's a part of it that's just related to non-harming or not uh, getting involved in sexual misconduct, not lying or harming with our words. And then also in this area is not 
dulling or clouding the mind in the, in the way that would make us more susceptible to harming others. So this is the creative use of restraint, like saying, I'm not going to gossip. We make that a rule in our mind because we want to illuminate our tendency to gossip. So we make that resolve. In this situation, you know, with my sister or with this person at work, I'm not going to gossip. So then when we're with that person and there's the tendency to gossip, all of a sudden we get to see very clearly that habit energy precisely because we made that resolve in the mind. So this is how we work with sila. This is how sila changes our lives. Creatively working with restraint and also working with idea, uh, ideals, like having an idea like all of my sexual energy is going to be directed to my intimate partner. And so when I start fantasizing with somebody else, I'm simply going to replace that person with the person I have a commitment with. And then that, that, like, that's an ideal that we can aspire to. And then we can also restrain ourselves when we uh, leak or when we drift. Oh, no, that's right. And we come back. So I'm not going to talk more about that because I have been talking about that. And then maybe later in the summer I'll talk about this third area of the Buddhist uh, spiritual sort of description of the spiritual path, the third part of the Eightfold Path, which is samadhi. This is the concentration or the mental training. And for in terms of daily life, I mean, normally we think of this as the work we do when we're meditating. But in daily life it means doing one thing at a time, or really showing up, being fully committed to what we're doing. Like here, now you're listening to a talk, like what does that look like to be fully here? Well, it means that when your mind starts thinking about what you're going to do when you get home, you notice that, and you remind yourself, yeah, but I'm here now. And even though what's being said now doesn't seem so important, maybe, maybe it doesn't seem important because I'm not listening. You know how that is? It's like, this book is so boring. But we realize, you know, I haven't really been paying attention. And it's like always a chicken and egg. Well, what comes first? The fact that it's boring, and so therefore it's not interesting, or it's not interesting because it's boring, because it's actually you know, not written well. So we want to practice really showing up. And this is the root of all competence in the world, whether we're a parent or an artist or, you know, craftsperson. We have to really fully show up. Otherwise, life is boring. Boring is the result of not showing up. I mean, I don't know if this is actually true. It seems true to me. I've heard other people say it's true that I respect that if you're bored, it means you're not paying attention. And that would be an interesting thing to come back to when we, we dig into this area. But tonight I want to talk about one of the easiest ways to soften our mind. This is, this is the direct approach to freedom, is to go from a hard mind, a mind that is congealed around concepts or ideas that we then de defend, to a soft mind, a porous mind, or heart. You could substitute the word heart for mind if you want. And there's two, there's two ways to soften the mind. One is what we would more normally think of as a wisdom reflection, which is to see, the, like, for example, the conditionality of all phenomena. How everything is just coming and going lawfully, impersonally, 
All my thoughts are coming and going lawfully, impersonally, sounds, movement. The whole world is just an expression of nature. There's no center. This is a harder way to soften the mind. But if you can do it, it's very profound. And it's not so much of doing it. It's like a question of whether you, you are actually seeing that or not. If you're seeing that, it will have a powerful effect. You won't grasp. The mind doesn't cling. It doesn't get attached when it's seen in that way. A more accessible way for all of us to soften the heart, soften the mind, is to cultivate or to uncover the capacity for tenderness or love or forgiveness. And it's really important in Buddhism to understand that compassion is just the flip side of wisdom. They're not really different things. But it's a lot easier for most of us to experience the freedom of wisdom through the path of a moment at least, a moment of true, unconditional tenderness, softness, caring, kindness, forgiveness, patience, the different qualities, what we would normally, in the West at least, refer to as love or the heart. And one of the ways that it's usually start, we start talking about this, like how do we get in touch with this capacity? It's through forgiveness. Because forgiveness, in a way, guards the door, guards this capacity for love. And last week I mentioned, just in starting this topic, that our normal way, our normal mode in being in the world is this sort of inner gravitational pull. It's all about me, what I need, what I'm afraid of. And love, in all of its different manifestations, is just the opposite. It's an inner generosity. It's like a wanting to go out, a wanting to connect, a wanting to give away, a wanting to take care of. Even if we want to take care of ourselves, that's also an inner generosity. Just like self-hatred is like, ooh, it's like a separation, which all is all about this inner gravitational pull. So this is something, again, one, this is a great thing. This is something, again, that we can know viscerally. So not just as a concept, but we can know that, in, that feeling of inner generosity as an actual feeling in the heart, like a, an emotional, energetic feeling. Like when we're happy, when we're content, or when we're grateful. Some of, you know, every once in a while we stumble upon these emotions. <laughs> and if you happen to notice, so you're actually being mindful when you're feeling some gratitude, or you're feeling some happiness, you'll notice that you don't have this sort of inner gravitational pull. It's like you're, you're kind of expanding into the moment. You're noticing things that you wouldn't otherwise notice. When we're in the opposite mode, some self-centered mode, we tend not to notice things unless it's something we want or something we're afraid of. Otherwise, we tend not to notice the world. But when we're not there, when we're in a, a more loving, happy, generous place, then we start to notice things. For example, we might notice how we can take care of what's around us. Like, we, we're just sensitive to what's around us. And we just naturally, it's not even work, we naturally say the right thing to the person who needs to hear something, or pick up something that needs to be picked up, or give something to somebody who needs something. Because we're just in this, this sort of, all this potential energy that has the nature to go out into the world. 
It's interesting in the Tibetan Buddhist system, they have this great way of describing mind essence or heart essence. So what's left when you strip away all the self-centered stuff, all the self-centered conditioning? So this, you know, sometimes it's called Buddha nature or it's like the mind of an arahat, of somebody free of greed, anger, and delusion. So what's left? And they talk about luminosity. So there's this capacity for knowing or awareness. And there's emptiness. And there's unstoppable compassionate action. That's what's left. This is, and from a Buddhist framework, this is what's left with complete enlightenment. Luminosity, this sort of bright, open awareness that just knows what there is to know in the moment. Emptiness means there's nobody knowing. There's no center to the knowing. It's just knowing without anybody knowing. That's the emptiness part. And unstoppable compassionate action. Because we're alive, we're embodied, the, the system, you know, the system of being a human being, it is a doing system. That's what it does. As long as it's alive, it does things. And because there's no self-centeredness that's empty, then all that doing is unstoppable compassionate action. It's just going to respond moment by moment to whatever needs to be done. Because what would be in the way of that? Because there's no center. There's no self-centeredness operating. So it's a nice description. You can remember this luminosity or brightness or knowing, awareness. Emptiness of self. Emptiness of self-centered conditioning. Because that's been uprooted. That's the whole definition of enlightenment is when we go beyond our self-centeredness. All self-centered greed and aversion and fear and delusion and unstoppable compassionate action. <coughs> So the question is, how do we, how do we system, instead of just stumbling upon gratitude or generosity or kindness or happiness or love, patience, how do we systematically like uh, work with this freedom of the mind, the softening of the mind from the self-centered hardness to sort of the soft, tender, connecting, caring, responsive, loving mind and heart. Are there sort of techniques that are supportive? And as I mentioned, forgiveness is one of the best. The thing is, we can't go straight to forgiveness. I think I read, maybe I read last week from this book, At Home in the Muddy Water. Somebody, I mentioned that someone gave that to me recently. He has an interesting paragraph where he says, If someone were to ask a spiritual teacher, what should I do with all this resentment I feel against my friend? The teacher might respond, it's not good to hold on to resentment. Why don't you just let it go? But can we just let it go? Even when we know how much resentment hurts us, we often don't have that option. If we could just let it go, we wouldn't be stuck in the throes of resentment. Letting go is not a real practice. It's a fantasy practice based on an ideal of how we'd like things to be. So what he recommends, and it seems really wise to me, is that the way to move in the direction of this, this direct practice of freedom, the freedom of a loving heart. Because when we're loving, you can't be loving 
and caught up in self that self-centered gravitational pull at the same time. They don't exist in the mind and heart at the same time. They can't. So the first step is to understand, and this is really important, the mind works just like the rest of nature. It works in terms of cause and effect. So we have to recognize, like when we have a moment of generosity or forgiveness, we have to understand, well, what came before that? What was the proximate cause for this heart forgiving? or for this heart feeling generous. So we're just learning by pay, paying you know, careful attention how it all unfolds, just like we want to understand how anger unfolds. So when the approximate cause for anger is there, instead of identifying with it, we practice just seeing it without giving it energy. We practice being equanimous with it. That's how you extinguish anger. And when we have the approximate cause for forgiveness, we water it with attention. We look at it. We open to it. And then it gives birth to forgiveness. So what is the proximate cause for forgiveness? Well, one thing that I, it seems to be true for me, and I, I suggested it a little bit at the beginning of the sit, is understanding our humanness, our imperfections. And unfortunately, that means we need to feel the pain of non-forgiveness. And I mentioned this is our homework for this week, so maybe you have some experience with this that later, when we open it up for discussion, you can share with the group. The question is, do we know what it feels like to be unforgiving? And the answer is, maybe, maybe not, but we could right now know what it feels like, because if you're like me, there's some things you haven't forgiven. Maybe you haven't forgiven yourself for something you've done, Maybe you haven't forgiven your parent, parents, or partner, or friend, or sibling, your cat. <laughs> Our cat urinated on the floor today. <laughs> I'm working on forgiveness. <laughs> and the way we can work on forgiveness is we can notice what it feels like to be unforgiving. That's an actual experience. So if there's somebody we haven't forgiven, then that's alive in us. And the only thing keeping us from feeling it that is that we have a habit of creating defenses around our pain. So it's not always easy. We have to first want to acknowledge like that there is pain. And then what usually helps is to quiet down. If we have unfinished business, it's hard not to notice it if we're quiet. If we're distracted, you know, if we're busy, of course, we won't notice how much in pain we are. But as soon as we quiet down, we notice. This is one thing that is great about going on retreat. If you go away from your busy lives, where there's a pretty simple schedule, and not, you know, not so much media, no real responsibilities, but we're kind of left alone with all our unfinished business. It's great. And it's especially good, like if you go out into the wilderness, it's even more potent because wilderness has a stillness. It's the stillness of the lack of human civilization, human delusion, really. Because it's not the buildings that are kind of deluding. It's all this sort of psychic soup that we're in. I lived in New York City for a couple of years. Um, I wanted to be around this good uh, meditation teacher, so I moved there, and I never, you know, before, it's like, 
I would never have thought about moving to New York City, but I really connected with this teacher, so I decided I'd move. Moved into this meditation yoga center, or it really was an ashram. There were a lot of <coughs> monks living there, swamis, both men and women, and then some lay people like myself. And um, well, what? And I had visited New York a number of times prior to that. Um, I lived on the East Coast a long time ago, and I noticed like how incredibly energizing it is to be in New York City. And then I realized it's not energizing, it's agitating. <laughs> but because we're not paying attention, we think, oh my God, I feel so alive here. You know, walk in and it's just like, all oh, that. But it's not that we feel alive, we feel agitated. <laughs> you know, and it's like uh, we had a, a design meeting David and a few other people who are helping design the new Common Ground's new building in a, a restaurant down on Minnehaha today to discuss the interior colors of the building, of the walls and ceiling. And uh, I hadn't been in this coffee shop before, but it had some kind of bright, shocking, in my mind, colors. And then it had some music that I don't like to listen to too much. It was kind of loud and in-your-face music. And, uh, you know, it was agitating. I noticed that. We were talking about color, so we, we kind of discussed it as a group. And uh, so, so much of our life is this way. So if we want to just begin the practice, and in this case, the practice of connecting, or actually it's, it's like rediscovering love, rediscovering the capacity for forgiveness, the capacity for softening the mind, we have to step out of all the things that are stimulating for a while. Because then what we'll notice is what I mentioned at the beginning of the sit, we'll notice our humanness. All of the unfinished business, all of our wounds, all of our hurts, all of our fears, all of our resentments, all of our unfulfilled desires, all of that pain that Joseph, or Jack Cornfield calls the body of fear. But it's just like this, uh, it's like our bodies, especially because we have all kinds of equipment to help our bodies look good. But if we could actually see our energetic body, we'd see those psychic wounds, all that unfinished business. It would be alive there. People who can sort of feel, you know, energy workers, they kind of can notice where the system is off. And this is what we notice in meditation practice. The more subtle or quiet the mind begins to beco uh, become, the more attuned we become to what's off. And it's what we call in this business, dharma pain. So when we sit in meditation, often we feel a lot of ordinary pain, like our knees aren't used to being bent like this, and after five minutes they start to ache. Or we don't really have the muscle tone to hold our spine up without a back support, so our back begins to hurt. That's one kind of pain. But then there's another kind of pain where we feel relatively comfortable. And then as the mind gets more quiet, it becomes physically unbearable. So the pain arises in conjunction with the mind quieting down. So that's what we call dharma pain. That's a good pain to work with. It doesn't mean it's pleasant pain. It's not. It's even, in some ways, can be at least, more difficult to be with than ordinary knee pain or back pain, or those kinds of pains, too cold or too hot. But this Dharma pain is exactly what we want to connect with, because it's 
it's in our learning to be intimate with this humanness, the pain of being a human being, that the heart softens. And all of a sudden, we, it's like we're getting a graduate education on forgiveness and patience and love and compassion just by our willingness to be intimate at first in just moments and then moment by moment for periods of time and then for longer periods of time. And then some days when our practice is going well, it's like we're able to be the walking wounded. So we're feeling our Dharma pain all day long. We're feeling our humanness throughout the day. And there's no way we can be arrogant when we're feeling this. It's like, so if you're ever feeling arrogant, then it just means we're disconnected from our humanness. Or whenever we can't understand why someone's being obnoxious, it means we're not feeling our humanness. Because as soon as we start feeling our humanness, we know why people act the way they do. Because they're, they're, they don't realize it, but they're feeling lonely. But they don't feel lonely. They're irritated. They don't know why they're irritated, so they act it out. Or they're feeling angry, or they're feeling this or that. But they have no clarity about what they're feeling, so they're just acting out in the way that human beings act out. And then, of course, we tend to react to those people. But we only react to them because we don't understand our own pain. If we understand our own pain, we also understand our own impulse to act out in the world, right? That's the second part of forgiveness. So the first part is just to be able to have some continuity. First of all, to recognize our pain, that Dharma pain. And then secondly, to just rest with it. And then the second part of the forgiveness practice is while we're resting with our pain, we're seeing, we're seeing, like I mentioned, the cause and effect. We're seeing how our reactive habits arise. Because there we are resting with our pain. And of course, what's going to arise? The impulse to react to the pain and the way that we've been conditioned to react. So for some of us, it's being arrogant. For some of us, it's being irritated. For some of us, it's closing down. I mean, we're all these things in different places in our lives. It's not that we're just the victim way or the, the arrogant way. Some places we act out by being arrogant. Some places we act out by being irritated. Some places we act out by closing down, shutting down, going numb. Sometimes we act out by indulging you know, doling out by overeating, using drugs, using alcohol, consuming dumb media, you know, media that doesn't go anywhere, doesn't edify us at all, that just sort of dulls the mind, kind of puts the mind to sleep. You know, when we read books that are the same as books we've read before, over and over again, just as a way to escape. So these are ways that we act out, avoid feeling the pain that we're feeling. But when we can be right there, then we have this great advantage of seeing how this pain wants to act out in this way. And then, then we, by not acting out, by not picking up and acting out that impulse, we are undermining that well-worn groove in the heart, in the mind. We're reconditioning our life. We're undoing our habit energies replacing them with a new habit energy. This habit energy is called compassion and wisdom, right? Because we're there feeling the Dharma pain, feeling the pain of humanness. We're feeling the impulse 
So first of all, there's the pain of just the Dharma pain, just the pain of unfinished business, the pain of unresolved grief, unresolved sadness, unresolved anger, unresolved greed, wanting. Then there's the second pain of wanting to do something that's our habit, but not doing it. Wanting to act out. That's painful, because restraining ourselves is a kind of pain. It creates heat. right? We want to do this, but we know better, so we're not. It's better not to do it, but it hurts not to do it. It's so funny. It's this great irony that to act out unskillfully on the surface feels better than to restrain ourselves. In the long run, of course, it's, we're creating hell. But in the short term, it's hard work to restrain ourselves from doing things that are unskillful, that cause harm to ourselves and others. And then the third kind of, I know, this is, sounds like a lot of work, a lot of pain. <laughs> There's yet another kind of pain in forgiveness, and that's the pain of actually forgiving. So once we're able to sit with the pain of the unfinished stuff, or humanness, and sit with the pain of wanting to act out, but restraining ourselves from acting out. Then when we really are at peace with those two levels of pain, then there's the pain of forgiving. And the way that Kamala Master, one of my teachers, describes that is, if, and we used to do this when we were kids, I don't know, there's this fad that went around in the 60s, maybe you remember it where, this is like in grade school, You'd have someone do this and squeeze for a long time, and then you'd do all this sort of funny stuff on the wrist, which I don't think did anything. And then, but, but it kind of uh, distracted the kid you were doing this for a while. Does anybody remember this? And then you would ask them to open their hand, and they, it's like, they couldn't. I mean, they could, but it, it's like they, didn't, they sort of forgot how to do it because the body and the mind works together. And if you've had that intention to squeeze, because you're coaching them to squeeze, no, squeeze harder. And so you're creating that intention, and then it's like they forget the other intention, and it actually hurts a little to release the hand after you do that for five minutes. And this is that pain, that third pain of forgiveness, that when you actually show up and, and forgive yourself or show up and forgive somebody else, that it hurts because you've been so long saying, I'm the person who's resentful. I'm the person who will never forgive. We imprison ourselves in that idea. I'm not going to forgive that person. That's that squeezing tight. And then when we become, when we decide we want to be the person who isn't hateful, who isn't resentful, then we have to release that armor. And it hurts because we've grown accustomed to it. And it, it has given us a superficial feeling of being somebody. And we don't know who we are when we let that go. Who am I who's not angry at my father or mother or, you know, wherever we've held this anger for a long time? We don't know who that person is, so it's scary and it hurts a little bit. So this can be our homework this week, is to get to know these three kinds of pain. The pain of feeling our humanness the pain of feeling our impulse to react to our pain of humanness, but restraining ourselves, and the pain of letting go, the pain of forgiving. And these are sweet pains. These are the pains of transformation, of opening up. And we'll talk more about this next week, but I want to save the last 10 minutes to hear from 
people in the group tonight. If you have some thoughts from your own experience that you'd like to share with the group, of course, any questions that you have about the talk you'd like to bring up. So what comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Craig. This was something you were, you were dealing with the Muddy Waters book. But he's the, so from the book, it said, um, that you, if I remember correctly, that when you have resentment, you actually can't let go of it. And I was wondering if you could explain that. Because what I was wondering is that you can't let go because you actually never had it in the first place? Or... Well, and and maybe the ultimate sense, that's true. In the ultimate sense, there isn't somebody who has to forgive anybody. So, but because of the ways our minds are conditioned, we we often need to work on the level of the story of who is the perpetrator, who is the victim. And because the story can help us get to these, these three pains. But ultimately, when we get good at this practice, or in those moments when there's just a lot of intuitive wisdom, then it's just this natural and inherent upwelling of the heart. It's like, it's not a somebody loving, it's not a somebody forgiving, it's not a somebody being generous. It's just the natural expression of the heart. Forgiving, letting go, connecting, responding. And at that point, the story gets in the way. And we don't want the story. So we use the story when we need it. But when we don't need the story, it's really important to put it down because it will get in the way. But the story is especially useful in helping us go to where the pain is. Because the story is what often arises in the mind. And then every time there's a story, then we can ask, well, what's alive in the body? And then when we, when we recognize what's alive in the body, we can go, well, where does this, what, what, whatever it is that's alive in the body, does it hurt? Where is this hurt? Where is the pain of what's alive right now in the body and mind? Oh, here. This is the hurt. Right here in the heart. This is the fear or the, this is the constriction or the congealing or the heaviness. And that's the real object of meditation is to go there and to learn how to peacefully coexist, to become more and more intimate and less and less reactive with that dharma pain. I mean, there are other objects of meditation, but that's a classic one. Does that help? Dave? Um, You had talked a little bit about uh, the difference between uh, the physical pain while you're sitting sometimes and then also... I think you said the Dharma pain. Mm-hmm. And even tonight I felt it a little bit. Sometimes for me it's hard to tell the difference almost. Yeah. It's like when I start feeling, you know, anxious or fearful, and then it's like some physical stuff starts to happen too, and I feel like I, I got an itch on my nose, I got an itch it. And then <laughs> I'm like, no, don't itch it. And then it's like I'm fighting with myself, like an yeah. internal battle kind of. And then it's hard to let all that go sometimes so my question I guess is how do you just kind of let go of some of that stuff in a kind and loving way yeah well like uh, uh, the passage I read in the muddy water book we can't we usually can't go directly to letting go and wanting to go to letting go is 
is uh, generally a sign that there's aversion. Like we want to hurry it up. We're impatient with the pain or the discomfort or the confusion that's in our practice right now. So we want to let it go in order to be free. Well, that's called aversion. And aversion makes things tighter. So it's all about discernment. It's, this is a path of wisdom. This is, that's what it is. Even when we're talking about love, we're still talking about a path of wisdom, like clearly seeing the pain is the cause for the deepening of that recognition of love. So in this case, is to understand what is actually the pain. You might think it's the itch, but it actually may be a more pervasive pain, like the pain of restlessness, where they're just energetically, physically, and mentally too much energy. And then that makes these little sensations unbearable, like an itch, like heat. You know, when we're feeling restless, heat can be unbearable. Like, it's a little warm and stuffy in the room tonight. And so if you have a lot of restless energy, you might be finding it unbearable being here. But if we just look at the heat, we'll miss the point. The point is this restlessness. It's just like being in a bit of a pressure cooker or kind of trapped. And that, that has a, that's a more subtle, bit more powerful kind of pain. And so, so much of our practice is seeing, well, what actually is predominant? And generally, or often, what the first thing that comes to our mind about what's going on now isn't what's really predominant. It's just what's on the surface. But what's really going on, what we're really reacting to is this, not the obvious thing. So that's what's important about like uh, asking that question, well, what? Well, what's really going on here? What's really predominant? Or what am I not seeing? Because when the heart or mind connects with what's really going on, even if it's really unpleasant, with the predominant thing is really unpleasant, there's a, there's a certain kind of beauty and pleasantness associated with that moment of mindfulness, of connection. So this is like a, a worldly example of, of this is when somebody's dying or somebody's in a lot of pain and you really connect with that person, it's a beautiful moment. But it's also really painful. Whether you're the person who's really suffering and someone's really connecting with you or you're the person who's connecting with somebody who's really suffering, that's a beautiful moment, but it's also painful. But actually, if you really look in that moment, the beauty is what's really going on, the beauty of the connection. But when you lose that, when you get distracted, then it may be unbearable. And two seconds later, then it's an unbearable moment. I can't be, you know, I, and you start wanting to fix the person or, you know, distract yourself. So that's the key about mindfulness. Mindfulness doesn't really make sense without this ongoing discernment about what's really predominant here. Because we want to bring this capacity we have to be open or intimate or mindful to what is really happening. And we don't have good habits. We tend to pay attention to what's not relevant instead of to what's really relevant. And so the instruction I gave earlier about noticing what's alive in the body and noticing especially the pleasantness or unpleasantness of whatever it is that's alive in the body and mind, that's just a, a trick or a hint of how to find what's really predominant in any moment. And then once you connect with the restlessness, 
you might just notice that you settle down. It's, it's going to be even more painful because now you're really intimate with the pain. But you're supported by the beauty or the goodness of being connected. And that can sort of give the heart some resilience to be with difficult experience. Any last comments before we end? Mm-hmm. No, no, you just allow things to happen naturally. So if the if crying begins to happen, you just allow it to happen. And if it feels good, then you pay attention to it feeling good. The key is not to... Um, we don't want to indulge in anything, but we also don't want to restrain or re, uh, constrict anything. It's like the, the basic predicament is that we're all entangled. And, and there's a way, the system knows how to untangle. So we're basically giving permission to the body-mind system, heart-mind-body system, to untangle itself. And sometimes that untangling includes crying, sometimes a lot of movement. But we're not intentionally crying, we're not intentionally moving, we're not intentionally doing anything. We're just letting the system untangle. Yeah, so that's a common thing to arise in practice is tears from time to time. There's one of the great uh, Thai teachers says, if you haven't begun to cry, your practice hasn't begun. Now, don't use that for a cause for judgment. But I never used to cry until about 10 years into my practice. And then I, now I can cry pretty easily. And... Uh, and that was 10 years of real devoted practice. <laughs> but I was maybe more defended than most. I don't know. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. We can appreciate being here together. Touching the experience of being alive, this body and mind now. May we cultivate a beautiful aspiration for our lives. So we're living and practicing in a way that supports the well-being of all beings, not just ourselves, but all beings without exception. May our lives be the cause for peace and ease and freedom from suffering for all beings. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.